Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. It's a dart. Dart's my word. It's the nothing personal word of the day. Why dart? I'm talking about the kind of dart you throw at a board. Did you see what happened yesterday? It was pretty cool. Someone named Fallon Chirac became the first female darts player ever to beat a man at the Dart World Championships in London. So I'm watching and I'm thinking, this is like the Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King battle of the sexes. This was major. This was a moment where she was able to win three games to two. She needed a double 18 do you know what a double 18 is? Yeah, that's right right on the edge of the dartboard, the outer circle. You get a little tiny red area. You got to get the dart in there. She missed by like a millimeter the first dart. Second dart, double 18. She's a winner. Why is my word dart? Because I wanted to bring attention not just to the sport of darts, but to the fact that her quote after winning was, what I've just done tonight I hope it just proves that women, that we can beat men, we can play well against men. Well, I can only tell you this, Fallon, I didn't need you to hit that double 18 for me to know that women are better than men at almost everything. But I'm glad you got your first ever world championship victory in dots. How about the Garrett Cole press conference today? Anyone see it? It was a travesty. These press conferences, here's how it goes. We we talked a little on nothing personal when you sign and negotiate with Scott Boris and how the end of that negotiation is very simple. It ends in a press conference. And during the press conference, it's all planned. Every part of it from when Scott Boris is seated to having the player actually sign the contract. There's a video of Scott Boris sitting next to Garrett Cole in between Brian Cashman as he signed his contract. And the first hand Cole shakes is Boris's. Then, of course, you have to plan the dais of the press conference. And what was fascinating to me is that you had Cole, obviously, in the middle. But then you had Randy Levine, the team president, on one side. And then Hal Steinbrenner, the chairman of the partnership, the main owner, on the other side. Then next to the owner was Scott Boris. Next to Scott Boris was the chief operating officer, Lon Trost. And then it went on down the line. On the other end, next to Randy Levine, was Brian Cashman, the GM. This is all planned. And it is a fight every time with Boris where he's going to be and then what photograph he's going to be in. And what I like to see was that when the jersey presentation happened, the first set of photos, Boris wasn't in. He then got himself in another set of photos. It's all a negotiation. You'd lose your mind trying to coordinate it all. There's someone in the PR department who has a list of every photo that has to get taken, exactly where everyone's sitting. There's a rehearsal done with interns of walking in. There's an order that you walk into the press conference. There's an order you sit down. What looks like it's not prepared is so unbelievably prepared that it would knock your socks off. But then the fun stuff, fun starts for me, and that's when I hear them talk. You know, listen, Garrett, I... 
I appreciate that you love the Yankees. There's a whole thing going on right now. It's trending everywhere, right? Go on Twitter, and you see a sign that ostensibly he went to a game with his dad in 2001 and held up a sign saying, I'm a Yankee fan today, tomorrow, forever. And apparently his dad kept the sign. It's in great condition, but they must have kept it in the sun because it totally faded, although paper fades, I grant you. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, Oliver Stone. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I think it's the same sign. Whether you're a Yankee fan today, tomorrow, I'm in. But is that why you're a Yankee? So they tried to play this up, that this was a slam dunk, that Cole wanted to be a Yankee, that this is the place that he expected to sign. So Hal Steinbrenner was asked after the press conference to say a few words, and what he said was simply spectacular. And it's what we've talked about here about what it means to negotiate against Scott Boris. Hal Steinbrenner got out-negotiated, and then he actually admitted it. For the first time, we have an acting owner who is actually telling you exactly what happened. He said, we listened to Scott Boris, what he told us, what he wanted, what it would take. I truly believe if this had gone another week or another two weeks, he would have gotten that ninth year from another team. <laughs> oh, my God. Hal, you just negotiated against yourself. You went to a place you did not have to go, and you explained exactly what we talked about on the show. You actually fell victim to it. I've done it. I know it's hard. But you actually acknowledge, you listened to Scott, what he told us, what he wanted, what it would take. You know better. Never listen to what the agent says. You have to decide what you think he's worth. Make that offer and be comfortable that you have to be willing to walk away. Because if you're not willing to walk away from Garrett Cole and move on to another starting pitcher, you're going to end up giving the extra year and the extra dollars. And that's what you did. And then the minute you went to the ninth year, when Boris tried to get it from any other team, remember, Hal Steinbrenner, after you agreed to 324 over nine years, he called the other teams and asked for 324.1 over nine years. You know that, right? Okay. So once the team said no and Boris put a deadline on the other teams, he then accepted your offer. Then it got even better. So Boris gives an interview, and he then talks about the fact that this is all about the father-son relationship with Garrett Cole and his father. This is all about the fact that they went to a Yankee game in 2001, that they shared this incredible father-son moment, and that that was the contributing, if not main factor, in him choosing the Yankees. He said that Cole told him, Get it done. I only want to be a Yankee. Give me a small break. If that's what Garrett Cole wanted, how come after the Astros lost the World Series, he did an interview in a Boris hat and not a Yankee hat? Why wouldn't Cole have come out and said, nine years? I don't need nine years. The minute the Yankees made an offer of 245 over seven, I would have taken that. I, 245 million. I think that his wife would have smiled just as proudly. And he would have been okay, family, friends, his father, everyone would have been good. Why wait for the last dollar if you were going to the Yankees from the beginning? 
Scott, I don't believe you. And you put your client in a position to lie. So Garrett Cole stands up and talks about all the excitement and all the interesting things about being a Yankee and what it means to him, etc. And I just found it strange in that why wouldn't he just say, I like the Yankees. I like the Angels. I'm good either way. What I know is that I have a chance to win a World Series here. And when they were willing to offer me the ninth year where I couldn't get that anywhere else, that was just gravy for me. And I was so thankful to my agent, Scott, for out negotiating Hal Steinbrenner. That would have been good. It's sort of like what Brian Cashman did at the end of this when he was asked about how he feels, how great it is to have Garrett Cole. And he answered the way every GM answers because this is a true answer. He said, thank you. Next. Because in New York, there has to be a next. Because Garrett Cole coming to the Yankees, if that does not lead to a World Series ring, once in the next nine years, they've got to win one and Cole's got to be a part of it. This contract will be looked at as a huge mistake. If he helps them win a ring, one ring only, this contract becomes well worth it. And the bet is that Aaron Boone leads them to a World Series. The wish for me is that these press conferences would be filled with more truths. And as I look back at my career, I wish that I had had a chance to be much more honest during the course of the press conferences I did. So I like focusing on press conferences and I think about them and, and how, uh, how, how they happen. Like how, what, how does a coach think about what he's going to say? Is he speaking to me as the team president about what he's going to say? The one press conference that coaches do and managers do that I accept in very extenuating circumstances that I don't control is the post-game scrum. And it used to be where a manager would sit in his office after a game and you'd have three or four or five beat writers who are people who cover your team every day and they ask you about the game and ask you things that are going on. That's when I first started. Then it became managers actually going into a press conference room, a larger gathering of media because we'd give out more credentials because you've got bloggers, you've got internet sites. There's just the media is a lot bigger now. Even in Miami, forget obviously New York. But now we ask the manager to actually make announcements. We actually ask the manager to talk about player moves when we send a player down, when a player's going on the injured list. When there's a move to be made during the season, very often we'll ask the manager to announce that. So when that's the case, when a game would end, we would meet in the manager's office. We would tell the manager what's, what player move we're doing, what needs to be announced. We'd make the player move and then send the manager on to meet the media. So those are press conferences where I am involved. When it's just a regular game on a Tuesday without a player move, which happens, and you know we won four to one or lost three to two, whatever the case is, the manager goes in and talks about the game, and that's the end of it. So when the Clippers played in the NBA, it's the same thing. Doc Rivers, the former Nick, uh, former Hawk, his son's a player too. I can't remember what team his son plays for. But I'm about to have it whispered to me that he's currently on the Rockets. Thank you, Ruben. Coca, you were a second late. Is that Doc Rivers is now the coach of the Clippers. Now, Doc Rivers, as we know, he's sort of a feisty guy. And um, he has had his share of bending the rules and his share of interpreting the rules. So this is not exactly a church-going scrivener. This is someone who takes advantage of situations. This is someone who tampers like the rest of us. But at the end of a game, he was basically on the dais of a press conference, just him. 
And he was asked a question which got my attention completely. He was asked by a journalist about load management. And we've talked about that. Load management is when you're sitting your star players. And there are rules the league has about when you can sit your players and when you can't. And LeBron James of the Lakers, not of the Clippers, of the Lakers, has said that he's not a big fan of load management. He doesn't want to rest. And his view of it was, hey, listen, there are people buying tickets to see me play. I don't know how many years I've left. So I'm going to play as much as I can. I'm not going to do, quote, unquote, load management. Now, forgetting whether that's true and whether he'll play a full 82-game slate, which I doubt, whether he calls it load management or not, none of that's relevant. What is relevant is a journalist said to Doc Rivers, so listen, um, given LeBron's comments about load management, you know, what can you say about your philosophy as it relates to the Lakers' philosophy? Because Kawhi Leonard is their star player. Kawhi Leonard has been resting a lot with load management. And Doc Rivers looked right at the camera, deadpan to the camera, and said, oh, do you mean LeBron's philosophy? And what he meant was that LeBron is running the Lakers ship, that LeBron is responsible for everything that happens with the Lakers on and off the court, that his philosophy is what rules the day. I was fascinated by that because it showed me two things. Number one, Doc Rivers is firmly, firmly a Los Angeles Clipper. And the Clippers have this syndrome, this like ugly stepsister syndrome that they're so overwhelmed and intimidated by the Lakers that they have to try to like nip. It's like a mosquito nipping at an elephant's ass, right? It's just so annoying, but they can't sort of kill it with the trunk. That's what the Clippers are to the Lakers, right? They're a gnat and that's it. And so they feel that. The Clippers feel it. And so you can just tell from Doc, he was very curmudgeonly when he, on this tape, and he just seemed angry and bitter toward the Lakers because he should know better. Because Kawhi Leonard, you know, he's a, he's a clipper for one reason, because A, Doc Rivers tampered with him, and B, Kawhi Leonard told Doc Rivers, if you want me to be a clipper, you better trade for Paul George. So the Clippers went out and traded for Paul George. So it's not as though that Kawhi Leonard's not involved in running the Clippers, even though Doc thinks he's in charge. It's the same thing that LeBron is doing for the Lakers. LeBron definitely had something to do with Anthony Davis coming over to the Lakers. That's normal. It doesn't happen as much in baseball, but in basketball, that is a very common thing for players to be in charge. Now, are players setting the team rules? Sometimes. Are players involved in what the philosophies are of drafting, trading, or signing players? Sometimes. A player like LeBron? Most times. A player like Kawhi Leonard? You betcha. If he's interested in something with the Clippers, he's going to get himself involved. And I have absolutely no problem with it. It just continues to surprise me that Doc would show as a professional with a team that's good Stop genuflecting toward the Lakers. You don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to be sarcastic about the Lakers. Ignore them. Talk about your own team and the prospects of your team getting a title before the Lakers. And that was a self-serving statement because one of my wait-to-sees is that the Clippers will win a title before the Lakers. Boy, we did funny stuff with the All-Star Game. Do you guys have a – do you like – First of all, thank you so much for listening and for downloading, subscribing to this Nothing Personal. We're here at episode 44. I appreciate the five stars and the follows at David P. Sampson. Thank you very much. And I like talking about things that go on 
in my in my head and and stories that happened and the way I wanted to run a team for the 18 years I did it. And one of the big issues for me was always the All-Star game. And the All-Star game in baseball, it's a big deal. It's the Midsummer Classic. People are actually paying attention to it. And it was a sense of pride for me as the president of the Marlins or when I was with the Expos. You want as many of your players on the All-Star team as possible. And you want to say that you want to market the fact that, yeah, we have three All-Stars. We have four All-Stars. You don't want the one compulsory All-Star. My apologies to Gabby Sanchez, but one year Gabby Sanchez was our only All-Star and he was an all-star. Gabby, I'm sorry. I think you're listening. But you're an all-star because every team in baseball has to have an all-star. And that's a rule that baseball started because they wanted every market to tune in to the all-star game, thinking that you tune in to watch your own player. Because that rule started when the extra innings package didn't exist and the only team you were watching on TV was your team. But now you have the ability to watch any team you want any night. And so therefore, you're turning into the all-star game to watch your favorite players. It doesn't matter what team they're on. So the old days of that rule, I tried to get rid of that rule, uh, but baseball would not get rid of it. I think it's archaic, and I get it because if I were the right now the president of the New York Giants or the Miami Dolphins, I'd be despondent. They didn't get one player put into the Pro Bowl. Not one. Meanwhile, the Ravens had 12 time the all-time record. How do you know how your rebuild is doing or your tanking's doing or your team's doing? From a Pro Bowl standpoint, it may be meaningful. From an All-Star game standpoint, it wasn't meaningful at all. Here's how the All-Stars work in baseball. <clears throat> it used to be that you had a vote, like a tab, like a paper vote, and we would get people in a room and we'd be tabbing Marlins who didn't deserve to start in the All-Star game. But that's how starters were, were named by votes, by votes. Then the coaches, managers, and league get involved and players in naming the other All-Stars. And there's a lot of favoritism. There's a lot of clicks, a lot of relationships. It's very political. Then in baseball, injuries happen, and you've got replacement players who become All-Stars. So as it turned out later in my career, the last three, four years, if you weren't an all-star, that was a bad thing because each team had like 50 players on it. So imagine 40 or 50 all-stars in the league and every contract we signed always had a bonus, 30 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand for being named an all-star. More if you were elected by the fans and a little less if you were simply selected by the league or by players. But either way, it was a bonus. So I just felt badly trying to get players onto the All-Star team because I knew it was going to cost me money or the team money. But on the other hand, I felt as though from a marketing standpoint, the more All-Stars you have, the better. So it was a straight marketing proposition, period, end of sentence. When we would negotiate contracts, we would throw in the provision. And can you imagine like uh, Giancarlo Stanton? negotiating with him for a $325 million contract, and it was important that he got an extra hundred grand for making the All-Star game, right? For me, I'd always get annoyed because if you're getting paid 30 million bucks a year, you better be a damn All-Star or you don't deserve that money to begin with, right? You're expected to be an All-Star. So I don't know why there'd be a built-in bonus. 
But be that as it may, there were bonuses, and I always felt dirty about it because I knew we'd have to pay these players because I worked hard to get them onto the All-Star team. I wanted players to start the year we hosted in 2017. I wanted to have Marlins who were starting. That's the year we hoped Jose would be the starting pitcher. That's chosen by the league. But that we'd have Yelich starting in the outfield as an example, or Stanton, etc. So as I look back and think about what I did, I did care about the All-Star game a little more than I let on. But in football, who cares about the Pro Bowl? Right? It's not meaningful. It's not meaningful to the players. It's not meaningful to the fans. And it's not meaningful to the league. And the way I know this is, do you know how many votes Lamar Jackson got? Lamar Jackson, the Ravens quarterback, the MVP of the NFL, the potential Super Bowl champion, Baltimore Ravens. About 770,000 votes total fan votes. The NBA leaders get two and a half million votes. The MLB leaders in All-Star voting get two plus million votes. How can the NFL be so far behind? How is it that do fans care less? Does this mean from a baseball, I'm a baseball junkie, does this mean that MLB has surpassed the NFL in popularity? No. What this means is the Pro Bowl needs to be completely reworked, rethunk. Is that a word? Rethought? I'm going to go with it needs to be rethought. The Pro Bowl is completely meaningless. The players don't care. The fans don't care. The teams don't care. And that's reflected in the number of votes you're getting from the fans. And if I'm sitting in the NFL's office right now, in their marketing office, in their PR office, I am making changes and I'm getting those changes effective immediately. It doesn't matter if the game's in Hawaii or Orlando or in Miami or on Mars. What matters is whether it counts, when it's played, and how you can gain fan interest. But a game of flag football that is the Pro Bowl, because no one really wants to hit anyone, that's not that exciting. Because we may complain about concussions and talk about the violence of football, but guess what? That's why we're watching. Matt Patricia gets to watch the Lions for another year. I like that segue. I totally made that up right now. I was interested in Martha Ford. She's the, uh, she owns the, the Detroit Lions. William Clay Ford owned them, and he passed away. Martha Ford now is the owner. There are thoughts that she will sell the team, but she sort of is like the, uh, she reminds me of the actress um, who owned the Cleveland team in the movie Major League. So she just sort of, she walks around and, and she's just getting to know, like Georgia Rosenblum was like this when she first took over for her husband, Carol Rosenblum of the Rams. They were either the Los Angeles Rams back then. I can't remember which Rams. I think it was L.A. And you just sort of get the feeling this is not a woman-man thing. It's not a battle of the sexes. But you just sort of, it's any new owner getting used to what it is to own a team. And when you're around the team as a family member but not in charge and then you become in charge, believe me, it's a whole different ballgame. So she has this former New England Patriots guy, Matt Patricia, who's in his third year. He's 9 and 20. He's sort of the frumpy-looking coach of the Lions, and, and he will now have an opportunity. He's 9 and 20 and 1. He tied. He will have an opportunity to coach for a third year as a head coach. Why is this noteworthy? Why is it interesting to me that Martha Ford would actually go public like this and say that Matt Patricia is coming back? Well, what she's trying to do is get some sort of stability with the Lions franchise. Remember, when they got him, it was a bit of a coup. They brought him in, signed him to a three-year deal. So the fact is, he's just completing his contract. 
And that is noteworthy because so many first-year coaches who have long-term deals who don't perform are getting canned. And they're on the permanent hot seat. Changes are being made. See Adam Gase with the Dolphins and now even possibly with the Jets. See Pat Shermer. It goes on and on. Why would Matt Patricia not fit this mold? If this is the way NFL teams are acting, are the Lions smart to be doing it differently? Is it actually good to tell your GM, Bob Quinn, and your coach, Matt Patricia, listen, I know we're 9-20 and 20 over the last years. I know we started off 2-0-1 and things were looking good and then we couldn't win another game. But I'm just curious. Uh, I'm aware of it, but I believe in you for one more year. Here's what I think is actually going on. I think that from her point of view as an owner, she's recognizing her place. And her place is her team's place. And her team's place is one that is performing exactly to plan. They were never supposed to be good this year because they don't have enough good players. You can blame the GM. You can blame the coach. The fact is there is a dearth of talent. And when that happens, a coaching change is not going to do it. The best time for an owner to make a coaching change is when you believe you've got the talent to be in the playoffs, to win a Super Bowl, and that talent is not being maximized. That's when you make that change. So, Martha, I applaud you for not making the change and sticking with the plan. I just wonder if your plan is right. And I would say to Matt Patricia, who I think is a fan of nothing personal, because it's not personal with you, Matt, but you got to get some wins next year or your extension's not going to come because your comments after being told that you're coming back are not enough. And he was gushing over, over Patricia. I mean, gushing in a way that made me uncomfortable. I'm not talking about in a Me Too sexual harassment way. He was just gushing, saying, I'm so happy here. This is the greatest situation. Really? It's greater than the Patriots where all you did was win rings? I find that a little hard to believe. Who wouldn't want to be David Beckham? Anyone know David Beckham, the owner of uh, one of the owners of the Inter-Miami MLS team, married to Victoria Spice? Living the dream, right? Well, the reason I want to be David Beckham has nothing to do with tattoos. Got him. Has nothing to do with Major League Soccer. Could have worked there, played there. No, I'm good. It has to... <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. I almost choked because what you're about to hear. I got excited. He got to buy into Miami as an expansion team for a $25 million expansion fee as part of his original deal when he came over to play for the Los Angeles Galaxy. That's a $25 million fee. And you wonder why owners of the other MLS teams were rooting against Beckham to get the deal done in Miami? And you wonder why Beckham was willing to take years in order to raise the money to get a deal done? Because his expansion fee was $25 million. Well, that fee is now up to between three hundred and three hundred and twenty-five million dollars. Yes, right now Charlotte is looking to pay an expansion fee to join MLS of three hundred to three hundred and twenty-five million dollars versus Beckham's twenty-five. Let's do the math. Let's just assume because we're going to do easy math here on nothing personal. Let's assume there are thirty teams in Major League Soccer. And the expansion fee is $300 million. That's $10 million per club. Now assume the expansion fee is $30 million. And there's 30 teams. That's $1 million per club. You think MLS wanted Charlotte to get a team 
and not Miami? You think MLS owners are super excited that they're getting these huge expansion fees? Do you think that Don Garber gets extensions to be the commissioner of Major League Soccer because he's expanding Major League Soccer and getting these unbelievable fees that are not based on anything? Expansion fees are based on the wind. It's based on ownership ego. It's based on finding a local guy like a David Tepper who owns the Charlotte Panthers football team to pony up to try to corner the market in sports. And what I love is that if you don't expand properly as a league, you end up in big trouble. Just think about your own business. Let's say you have a store or a product, and let's say it's selling well, you're building demand, and you decide to buy another store and open another store, or you decide to manufacture another product. You expand, you expand to a second store, a second product. Then you do more, and then more. And all of a sudden, you've become this huge chain of stores, or you have this huge number of products. Many times, these businesses go bankrupt because you don't have the infrastructure and you don't have the support at the bottom level in order to support such a large organization. Just because David Tepper paid over $2 billion to buy the Panthers, just because he's a wealthy guy who can afford $300 million to three twenty-five dollars in expansion, does that make it right to expand? If you're Major League Soccer, you have to, as commissioner, and this is something that Rod Manford does extremely well as commissioner of baseball, you have to sometimes look at your owners in the face and you have to say, listen, I cannot give you this short-term win right now. We have got to look out for the long-term value of these franchises. And the long-term value tells me We need a better TV deal in the United States. We need better first-rate players in our soccer league, Major League Soccer. We can't get the old scraps from the European leagues. We need them in their prime. Then we need to make sure that every team is on solid footing, not just the teams in Seattle, where they draw as much as the Seahawks. We need to make sure the league is profitable. Then... This is the important then, and it's tough to say this to current owners, but you have to. Then we have to have some trades. Some of you have to sell your team, and we have to see what people are willing to pay for the teams, whether or not the market, the asset value has appreciated to the point where you are all going to be satisfied. This is Don Garber talking, the commissioner of Major League Soccer, to his owners prior to all this expansion. But instead, Don Garber did the opposite. He went very heavy on expansion, and the owners love him for it. Short-term happiness, it could be a lot of long-term pain. So you want to talk to Samson. Yes, you do. I like that. Thank you. You come on my Twitter at David P. Samson. You give me so many topic ideas. I can't keep them all. I can't respond as quickly as you all are sending them. Some of them are fantastic, and, and and I think about which ones to talk about. And the one for today... Someone asked me a question that got me, not emotional, because I'm not all that emotional too often. I've been on this show, actually, but today may be one of those days. Someone asked, so I want to hear about what exactly do you miss about being the president of a Major League Baseball team? Which part? I got to thinking, and I was thinking about, is that a good segment? Maybe that's that's something I could talk about in the future. But then I realized that I want to talk about it today because I think about it every day. And I think about being the president of a team even more so during the holidays. So the history is of my presidency of a team 
is that I grew into the job. I was very young when I got it. And I was very insecure when I first got into baseball at 31. And I tried too hard. I was the guy who started planning 7 a.m. meetings because I wanted to show people that I'd work harder than everyone else. And the owner of the team at the time was my stepfather. So I had to prove that I was not just the child, but that I was capable of doing my job, forgetting the businesses I'd run, forgetting I'd come from Wall Street, forgetting that I had a law degree. To me, I felt as though I had to overly prove myself. And so I came in sort of like a, a bat out of hell. We talked a little bit about how new owners maybe enter into a sport and try to take their experience and apply it, and often it doesn't work. So what I did when I first got into baseball is I took my pre previous business experience and I applied it, and I tried to do false hustle. I tried to work extra hours like banking hours, trying to be on top of everything, learn everything. I tried to listen more than I spoke, but I'm sure I ended up speaking more than I, than I listened. But I loved immediately the platform I had in Montreal to be in and around the community. And I love the fact that so many employees were counting on me to do a job because when we came into Montreal, the expos were going to fold. They were going to be contracted. Now, of course, they ended up leaving. There was nothing I could do, but they got a few more years of working. And in Florida, when I got to Florida in 02, it was the same thing. Wayne Huizinga didn't want to own the team he sold to John Henry, who didn't want to own the team. And we came over because no one else wanted to. And there were hundreds of employees, all of whom were, were worried about their futures and worried about whether there'd be a team. People in the community were counting on there being a baseball team because of all the help that foundations do for baseball teams. And as I got more experienced as a team president, I was able to manage my flow better. And I'm, that's not a Flowmax reference who's not a sponsor, so don't re-mention the name until they are. That is actually just a comment about managing your workload and how efficient you are in what you do. Just because you work the longest hours doesn't mean you're working the most efficiently. Just because you work the longest hours doesn't mean you're working the hardest. What I miss about being president of a team is the ability to teach both myself and my employees about efficiency and about the difference that you make when you can be more efficient, not just to the bottom line, but also to what you're doing off the field. Because the quicker and faster you get your job done, the more time you have both for your personal life and for the things that we try to do around the community. We had tremendous community programs with the Marlins, and I miss those. I miss giving out turkeys. I miss having conversations with fans during games. I haven't been to a baseball game since I was fired. I miss baseball. I miss being able to go to a stadium and go anywhere I wanted because my pass opened every door. I miss having a master key to an entire stadium that I played a part in building so I knew where everything was, where every skeleton was in every closet. Right now at CBS, I have an ID that barely gets me past America at the front door. And I'm good. But you're asking me what I miss. I miss the fact that we have a win and a loss at the end of every day. 162 days a year, I was able to judge whether I won or whether I lost. And there was no delusion. Either we won a game or lost a game. Now doing this show with you, I can delude myself every day. I can listen to the claps of the people I work with at 3.45 p.m. every day, thinking that it was a good show when in fact it may not have been. I can look at the numbers of downloads and say that's a great number, but then feel badly that it's not a bigger number. 
in baseball at the end of a day when you're in sports and you're responsible, you win or you lose. I miss that. I miss that competitive nature. I miss feeling like crap every time we lost. I miss feeling like I could run the world every time we won. I miss players. I miss negotiating with players. I miss the concept of trying to best a player in a negotiation or an agent and then having a player try to best me in a conversation about baseball or about strategy. I miss the concept of team travel and of what it is to have that family because when you're on a team like that, it's a family. I love my new CBS Sports HQ family. We haven't yet traveled together because that is when you first know what your family's like, your work family, when you travel with them. So I miss team travel. I miss the ability to give more speeches. I loved making appearances, and I loved having people around me who would help me enter and exit certain places at certain times. I missed knowing that I had no idea what I was going to talk about, and I would take the microphone in front of several hundred people or more or fewer and talk about something that mattered. I miss the interns at the Marlins. I miss young people who are in their 20s. There's a lot of them at CBS Sports HQ, and I like talking to every one of them. But I miss running a program along with human resources, telling people that it's okay not to know what you're doing with the rest of your life. It's okay if you're not in the perfect job right now. Don't panic. You're going to switch jobs. You're going to switch offices. You're going to switch employers. Don't let office politics take you down. I miss those pearls of wisdom that I was able to impart only because I'd been around so long. I miss the fact that all of the employees and players kept getting younger and I kept getting older. I miss sort of what it feels like. It's like being a teacher, right? Your students stay the same age, but you get older every year. That's what it is to run a team. You get older, but your players always stay the same age. I miss that feeling of, of that time is passing and you have to take advantage of every moment. So you asked me, so you want to talk to Samson? I miss people. I miss the people I was with. I miss the league. I miss making a difference. I miss tapping into the emotion of all of you fans out there. I miss, I actually miss the vile, visceral anger that would be spewed my direction. Why? Because it means you cared. Apathy is what I fought against every day for 18 years. If you want to be negative toward me, I'm fine. If you want to be positive, that's great too. But what I can have you be is silent. And so while everyone thought that it must have made me crazy to see negativity and thrilled to see positivity, I was just so happy that she cared at all. And I miss being around a league where we are trying to do good things on and off the field. And I've taken that and I'm putting it into CBS and into this show because it fills a void for me that for two years now has been open. And I continue to bandage it. I still need Neosporin because that wound, it's still fresh, believe it or not. When you've had a career for 18 years and then it's gone, you don't forget about it overnight. It's an adjustment. And uh, I couldn't be happier where I am today. And I'm not just saying that. I really am. I'm unshackled. I get to talk about whatever I want to on this show. I get to be around professional, professional people in the media world who are just tremendous to be around off camera, on camera. But and I, I couldn't thank CBS enough for that opportunity. But you asked me what I miss as being a team president. I guess I'll give you, in conclusion, I'll give you the top three things. One, I miss the people who I grew up with over 18 years, who you see every day. It's called your work family. Don't underestimate the importance of a work family, and don't ever be deluded that your work family is your real family. Number two, I miss the winning and the losing. I love knowing at the end of the day whether I won or whether I lost. 
And number three, I miss the ability to do more in the community that I did with the Marlins or Expos as my platform. I miss that. Thanks for writing in. Thanks for DMing. I appreciate that very much. Okay, it's Christmas time. So I got my Christmas movies. I'm giving you my number one all-time Christmas movie. Now, I'm going to get so much crap for this, but listen, don't knock it till you try it. It's called Love the Coopers. I'm saying it with a straight face because it's a great movie. It's got John Goodman. It's got Diane Keaton. It's got Olivia Wilde, who just directed Booksmart. You know who that is. Marissa Tomei. And it's got a young Timothy Chalamet. You know Timothy Chalamet from Call Me By Your Name? The Academy Award nominee? Well, he plays a young, sort of uncomfortable teen in Love the Coopers. And then there's a talking dog. Except he doesn't talk to anyone on screen. You are listening to what the dog is thinking. And the dog's voice is Steve Martin. Why is it that I love this movie so much? Because it is about a family. And it is about crazy family. One crazy family and how they interact. And it's about a mother and a father, a grandma and a grandfather who are trying to figure out, played by John Goodman and Diane Keaton, and they're working through getting older. They're working through how to relate to their children. Their children are working through how to relate to each other and to their own children. The siblings, the parents, the grandparents, it is a perfectly layered comedy. It has got incredibly emotional moments. The soundtrack is first rate. A phenomenal Bob Dylan song all the way down from track one to track nine. Perfect soundtrack, perfectly written. They capture the feeling of what it is to be with your family at the holidays. So around the holidays, I like to watch it because you know very well the tension that can come. Well, that's love the Coopers because you will love the Coopers. You'll love your own family. And if you're going to watch one Christmas movie, just one, try love the Coopers. Just for me, try it. Okay. God, I needed overtime to win my pick of the day, didn't I? But we did it which is great. We had the Nets. Can you imagine they needed overtime to beat the Pelicans? But it doesn't matter, right? When you win a bet, whether you win it in overtime or regular season, regular, you won. We won. We're going again. Not Nets, though. I'm going Celtics. Why? The Celtics are on the road, and they have to give a point and a half to the Mavericks. Why would I not take the Mavericks, who are such a good team, getting a point and a half, when the Mavericks, who are without Luka, but they just beat the Milwaukee Bucks? Well, my reason is because I know a thing or two about the mentality of a team after a major injury to one of your star players. And don't think twice. Luca is the star of the Mavericks. Not Porzingis, it's Luca. Luca, Luca, Luca. What happens is as soon as he's injured, really the other players sort of step on in a way that you feel it's like a high. They're stepping above their ability. You're not thinking that he's out for two weeks. You're thinking that we can beat anybody. We don't need Luca, Luca, Luca. Everything's going to be great. And then you play a game like you played against the Bucks, And the problem is you win that game. You then start believing that maybe you are good and that you're okay without Luka. But then the Celtics come to town and you learn quickly that without Luka, you can't really beat a good team consistently. So this is a perfect storm for me. Only a point and a half the Celtics are giving to a Luka-less Maverick team? Let's hear it for the Celtics minus one and a half. Okay, wait to see. I like the wait to see because it gives me a chance to say something that I think is going to happen, and then it either happen or it won't, but we will follow up. There's a story here that's going on right now. There's a lawsuit. There's a guy named Shane Keisel 
Shane Keisel is the fan who was ejected from a game in Utah when the Jazz were playing the Oklahoma City Thunder last year. And he apparently made a racial comment toward Russell Westbrook when he was still a member of the Thunder. He actually told Westbrook to please bend your knees, something about bending, genuflecting, something that Westbrook took as being racially motivated. So the Utah Jazz did an investigation. They kicked Keisel out of his season tickets, took away all his season tickets. Then he apparently lost his job. He lost his mind. He got emotionally distressed. He was defamed. It was a total nightmare to behold. So what do you do in America when you feel you've been wronged? Here's what you do. You sue. Because anyone can sue anyone. So this guy, Keisel, is suing the Jazz, and he's suing Westbrook. And he's suing him for the two things that I loved the most when I was a team president, defamation and emotional distress. I think I've been sued 30 times for emotional distress, and guess how many times they've won? Zero. How do you prove emotional distress? It's impossible. It's not a criminal case. This is a civil case. It is the responsibility of the person suing, in this case, the season ticket holder, to explain why his life is in an uproar because he lost his jazz season tickets and he was made out to be having these racist comments that may have been racist, they may not have been. Well, my wait to see is the following. This lawsuit will never see the light of a court. We never would want to go to court. We'd say we would. So the jazz came out and said, we will fight this and the truth will come out. No, they won't. Because what you do is you do a calculation. How much will it cost in lawyer fees to defend this lawsuit versus how much I can give the person who just sued me? My way to see is that this guy, Shane, he will end up with about 70K. It will be a settlement, but it will be undisclosed terms. And the reason I guarantee this way to see is that it always, it's always business. It's nothing personal.